News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. It's a little after midnight on Wednesday morning, and election day has come. So joining us as he graciously has on every single election night since this pod began is the great Ben Max of Gotham Gazette. Hey, Ben, how are you doing? Hello, Harry and Christina. I am good. How are you? Ooh, ha- hanging in. <laughs> my, my, my brain is spinning. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But we're so excited to have you for yet another election night. I wouldn't be anywhere else. Ben, uh, w- w- Eric Adams didn't quite give a victory speech, although he did say he was going to be the next mayor. <laughs> so... If that's not a victory speech, Harry, what was it? Music? He said, "He said we're going to wait for the twos, the threes, the fours, and the fives, but we know who New York's number one is, and it's me, Eric Adams. Uh, he's leading by about 70,000 votes at this point over Maya Wiley, uh, who's about 20,000 over Catherine Garcia. Um, we still have uh, all the absentee ballots. We had... As many people turning out already, not counting those as, as we had in 2013. So, so Ben, fill, fill our listeners in on, 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 where things, uh, on where things stand with, with the mayor and down ballot, and then we'll jump in from there. I mean, listen, Eric Adams has put forward a very strong showing here. I think a, a, about what was expected, but maybe a little stronger than expected. I, I don't know that I thought coming into what we'd see in terms of the in-person first place tally. And that's what we have now. Um, You know, I don't know that I thought we'd see him with quite this kind of lead going into the absentees and the rank choice. So he's put forward a very strong showing. I think everybody expected him to be in the lead um, with the possibility that a Wiley or a Garcia or a maybe Andrew Yang, if certain things broke his way, but he was looking like he was fading and boy, did he fade. Um, you know, we pretty much everybody expected Adams to be in strong positioning at the end of this night. And he's in, he's in very strong positioning. Um, but we, uh, we know we have, uh, many tens of thousands of absentee ballots still to be counted for their first choice votes and then the RCV process to unfold. So there's a lot of, a lot of counting still to come and, uh, Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia are still in the game. And Andrew Yang, who was the uh, front runner for months, who soaked up all the uh, the media attention, and Scott Stringer, who who had been considered a leading candidate until uh, these harassment accusations came out about him pretty late in the race, uh, ended up at this point, and we still have absentees and everything else way behind like does this say anything nationally my bosses at the beast keep asking about this and my family members about the uh, state of the democratic party i know biden tomorrow no today it's wednesday is giving a big crime speech we have this ex-cop who's you know talked about uh reforming the police as well uh who, who who's had this this very strong showing is it is, is there a larger meaning there, or is this uh, an eight-candidate rank choice va- race that's we're still not at the end of, and it's uh, too soon to get there? I mean, I'm very interested in both of your thoughts on this because um, I think this is more open to interpretation than some might think. Right? It's very easy to sort of marry the fact that there's been a sustained increase in gun violence and shootings and murders in, in New York City and elsewhere with the fact that you have, um, as he describes it, a conservative on crime, former Republican, former uh, NYPD captain leading this mayoral race. There's there's clearly a connection there that his he had some parts of his message that were perfectly meeting this crisis moment of gun violence spiking in the city. At the same time, I am open to the theory 
that Eric Adams could very well be in this type of strong position or close to it, even if gun mm -hmm. violence had not been spiking in New York City. He was going to be a very strong candidate no matter what. So some some of some of both of that, I think. Uh, if we look down the ballot where Brad Landers seems to have had a very strong showing, um, reminded me a little of Stringer in 2013, by the way, where he's mm -hmm. like the little engine that could, and then the big guy comes in in big foots, uh, and then he appears to pull things out at the end. And it looks like Alan Bragg in a not-ranked choice contest is going to be the next district attorney in Manhattan. I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around how these uh, how these parts fit together and around this reform picture. You know, I think I mean I think all of this though speaks to the fact that every race has its own dynamics, and mm -hmm. and it's just you know every too many people like to oversimplify things. So uh, you know that's not my strong suit, and I I err on the side of uh, too much nuance sometimes, and and we we published very lengthy articles at Gotham Gazette uh, uh, to uh, to show that. But um, listen, you know, the the specifics of the Brad Lander race are very interesting for Comptroller. Again, you know, nothing's a done deal here, but he, you know, came in over, I think, a lot of people's expectations, riding both years of work that he's put in and also the combo of AOC and the New York Times, which is you know, pretty good in a race like Comptroller where, you know, people are not really studying up on a lot of things. But this is a city council member who has been very far to the left, unabashedly, voted against last year's city budget because it didn't defund the NYPD enough, um, you know, and, and then he's he's pulled ahead significantly in a citywide race. So that, again, goes to the point that, you know, we shouldn't read too much into uh, anything here, including, you know, the Eric Adams lead that he has. Uh, and Alvin Bragg in DA is, you know, this was this is not someone who was running a far left campaign. He was running somewhere in the middle of the of the candidacies. Right. There were definitely a couple of candidates to his right. And there were several candidates pretty far to his left. And he was really putting forward a very balanced platform relative to the rest of the field. Um, and it, it seems to be paying off for him that he was he was sort of merging reform, but not going so far, but also experience, lived experience, um, and and putting forward a very, you know, formidable campaign there. So I got a few thoughts. Um, one, Let's hear them. Let's hear them. <laughs> well, you know, it, listen, it's almost it's one o'clock in the morning, so, you know, you're going to get unfiltered, Chrissy. But in the next few weeks, or until we have certified results, we're going to have a lot of journalists who are really smart about national politics weighing in on New York City. I'm going to say, don't do that. <laughs> because there is a lot of nuance with each of these races. And there are a lot of people who are really smart at what they do. But I'm going to say, stay in your lane. Because if you don't understand New York City politics, your hot takes are not helpful or useful. Because there's a lot of granular level race and class and neighborhood discussions that we've been talking about and thinking about for a long time. So that's my little PSA to journalists. <laughs> it might sound You've a lot like warned. Eric Adams <laughs> sort of calling I mean, out. We do, we do need to discuss that Eric Adams speech a little bit. Yes, yeah, we will dissect that. Well, I, I did want to sort of think about because you said, you know, even if crime and public policy weren't sort of where we are right now, that he'd still probably have the lead. And I agree with you fundamentally, largely because in that speech, he said, you know, when he's talking about Black Lives Matter, he also pivots to this very conservative message of it can't just be about Black lives when it comes to policing. It has to be about Black-on-Black -black crime. We've seen that with Black mayors across the city. Lori Lightfoot, I'm looking at you in Chicago. That is a message that a lot of moderate to conservative Black folks believe in, older Black folks especially. That's also a message a lot of white folks believe in, white conservatives specifically. So, I mean, the free. I'm fascinated by the frequency in which... And when I say frequency, I'm talking about decibels and what people hear and when they hear it. Uh, how Adams speaks to a diverse coalition of New Yorkers. Because that, that messaging is something that conservative white people are all about, but so are quite a few black people. Um, and they, they agree with it as well. And so it's not a surprise to me that he built this coalition at all. I think 
with Al Bragg and the Manhattan DA and possibly becoming the first Black DA in the history of Manhattan, agreed. You know, you had Janos Martin, who dropped out earlier in the race because he saw that the progressive lane was sort of taken up by Tahani. But then he endorses Alvin and works with Alvin on the campaign, which I think is a really fascinating strategy because I always called Alvin the pragmatic progressive. He's not some far left candidate. His CV is very impressive. However, he's not talking about let's open up all the jails and, you know, what's that Nas line, you know, send it, (laughs) open up every jail in Attica, send Mm -hmm. him to Africa. Like he's not talking about that at all. Um, And it comes from his, his work in SDNY and, you know, sort of, other things on his CV. So that to me wasn't a surprise. I think it was just an interesting race largely because he's going up against someone who gave herself $8.5 million and isn't used to hearing no. So that was a larger conversation about you're in a crowded field and someone who just has buckets and buckets and buckets of money and she was willing to spend it um, and also do some, I would argue, some sinister kind of Willie Horton-esque nonsense in the final hour racially and sexual harassment sort of framing to try and pin Alvin and Dan Court in a particular fashion. And it, it backfired, quite honestly. And then with the Comptroli race, again, another crowded race. But I do think, just as you said, people are looking at each race very separately. So someone who may have voted for Adams could have easily turned around and voted for Lander. Because this ideological purity doesn't exist in this race. I think mm-hmm. people are looking at very different things. And when it comes to Corey, who, you know, obviously had the name recognition, I think it's really fascinating because there were a few conversations about sort of where was he the past 17 months that sort of came up in some of the attack ads. And also I, this came up sort of in the last week or two, but this idea about qualifications when it comes to dealing with the city's money and I love the fact that we have elected officials, even as a college professor, who don't have college degrees because I think we should be represented in a very diverse way. And and when I say diversity, I mean all senses of the word. I don't think everyone should have Ivy League degrees or, you know, all politicians should be lawyers or whatever it may be. So I love the fact that, you know, Richie Torres and Corey have, have sort of carved this lane for themselves. But I am curious, you know, if we could interview voters who were once with Corey and say voted for him for say city council and then decided not to vote for him for comptroller did the fact that he the fact that he doesn't have a college degree was that a factor for them in deciding to vote for someone other than Corey for a comptroller's race where you're controlling the money of the city yeah I mean I think there's a lot of dynamics in that race to dig into but I think in the end of the day if it is Brad Lander beating expectations and beating Corey Johnson. It is because Lander was working on this race for years. Corey came in late. He, Corey Johnson, you know, campaigned hard, but didn't seem like he was fully into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Lander landed this double endorsement that, you know, in a race like this, in a democratic primary, you know, AOC cutting a big ad for him and getting the times editorial board is a very strong one too. And um, not to mention just cleaning up on enthusiasm among activists, left-wing mm-hmm. organizations, well, you know, the WFP. Is that a uh, shout-out to Jamani Williams. I was about yeah. to say, I think that's a shout-out to Jamani, oh, yeah. who also has been running in a race every single year <laughs> for the past 55 years. Right. So I'm, I'm curious if Jumani was able to actually assist him in, this is what a campaign looks like. This is what a sustained mm-hmm. campaign looks mm-hmm. like. This is what a campaign that people may or may not be interested looks he, like. I mean, one of the things, one of the things about the Lander uh, showing here again, we can't say victory, but you know, the strong showing is this is a guy. I mean, he's been he and Jamani have been working together for many years, right? I mean, when I started covering New York politics, they were passing the Community Safety Act over a Mike Bloomberg veto to try to rein in stop and first practices. And, um, and so they've been working together on issues for a really long time and, and been very, very tight. And so, um, you know, they've been doing things that are relevant to a citywide campaign for a long time before Jamani became a citywide elected official. And now Lander's on the verge of, of that potentially. Um, but one of the things about Lander is this guy has been showing up 
at things all over the city for years and years and years. Like he doesn't miss a protest. He doesn't miss a rally. You know, again, it's all mostly on the sort of further left side of things, but you know, he's, he, he'll, he'll, any, any workers that are striking, you know, I mean, he just shows up at everything and that, that came through with big, big dividends. And, and you, you heard a lot of people who had hesitancy in the mayoral race, even early on lefties who had hesitancy about Stringer, Maya Wiley, didn't really know who Diane Morales was, but wound up, you know, a bunch of them backing her because they sort of saw that she was at least speaking their language. But a lot of those folks who had hesitancy in the mayor's race were in with Lander from day one in the controller race. And and that seems to matter. And as a council guy, same thing. You know, my wife, who's fairly conservative in a bunch of ways, loves him because he, he shows up, his office is responsive. <clears throat> He just puts in that sort of uh, diligent political work, and, and that came across also in, in the uh, in the debates and in his presentation and preparation, I think. Um, so AOC endorsed Lander very early, and that didn't have much of an impact in the limited polling that was initially available. And I mentioned that in passing at one point, and they said, look, we haven't gone up on TV yet. No one's paying any attention to this race. She backed Maya Wiley very late and very, very late said, and by the way, Scott Stringer is who I'm voting for, number two. Um, I know Eric Adams cleaned up in her in her district uh, from, again, pending, uh, pending absentees and so on. Like, how did the, uh, the progressive movement do in your view? And maybe that's a good point to touch on the, uh, the council races which is where the DSA, for instance, put all of its efforts while staying out of the mayor's race entirely. Mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) the mayor's race has been so unique and so complicated. I mean, you know, it's so hard to sort of pull all this apart. You know, the Scott Stringer scandal and implosion of sorts, followed by the Diane Morales implosion, followed by this sort of late coalescing behind Maya Wiley, um, you know, it, it, I mean, it, there's a lot of complicated strands here. And I think a lot of that will be determined by the fact does Maya Wiley wind up in the last two with Eric Adams and who knows what happens. Um, you know, he looks really, really strong going into the absentees and the RCV, but we just don't know what's going to happen. So I think it's, it's a little early to judge. I think one of the most important things about this race though, was that Maya Wiley couldn't earlier on bring together more of the coalition that she wound up sort of roundabout getting because Scott Stringer lost a lot of it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, look, he had put in the work for years on a lot of this, but she, um, you know, she didn't, she didn't present herself in that strong of a way to a lot of these groups. I mean, the fact that, you know, the working families party wound up putting her third behind Morales as well, it was pretty telling. Right. So, um, maybe she didn't want to run that far of a left campaign, um, but uh, it, it got pretty it got pretty messy on the left. And you know, one of the things about um, someone like AOC coming in for her is that felt a little bit like she really backed into it. Like AOC didn't really want to get involved in the mayoral race. She had gone in for Lander and Controller because he had put in the work and showed, you know, like I was saying, that he was sort of a true lefty that she and others could get behind. And then she sort of backed into the Wiley endorsement. And then it's not like she was crisscrossing the city with Wiley, right? And and you saw some of that with with others on the left that, you know, the WFP sort of came around and has really been trying to boost her to salvage things. But um you know, it's been very fractured. And I think in part is because Maya Wiley's not really a candidate of the, of the far left. She's just not. Um, and that's okay, <laughs> but it's going right. to cause some problems for the left trying to really coalesce. I think that that piece that Maya's not of it is really key because in the beginning, you know, when you're talking to a lot of these social justice groups that have been around for a long time and doing the work, many of them were like, yeah, I don't know her. She seems nice. I mean, I've seen her on MSNBC, but it's not like people saw her on New York One. It's not like people knew her from the community. So this narrative of, you know, social justice warrior, folks were like, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is it in New York? I mean, like, were you social justice warrioring? (laughs) 
And But it's not until Diane Morales and Scott Stringer implode in their various ways where, you know, what, you want Catherine Garcia, who I still think well, is a Trojan horse, right? This is, this you know, is, you want Andrew Yang, who, who is like one of those daffodils in the wind, like whichever way the wind blows is where he's going. So it's UBI one day, but then lock up all the mentally ill and be super conservative the next. So she's the best option, but it's she's not from the group. So, so we There's know not Andrew a Yang's history. not going to be mayor because he's conceded. He said he did the math. It's not <laughs> he happening. He did the math. And he also said he's going to be, he wants to be of service here and, and he's going to keep contributing. We will see. But, but my contributing question is, to what? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm, because I was really, mm-hmm. like, you want to be of service to whom and contribute to what? What is your skill set that you're contributing to? Like, what, you want to be a cheerleader running against Sliwa? Like, I don't get, like, I don't understand what we need you for. What do you bring? So, so my question really is, is, is we're just going to dismiss Andrew Yang and that for one minute. Uh, he's discovered he's good at running for office and, and, and getting money involved. And if he really wants to contribute and take a breath and think about things, cool. But I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I am sort of curious if these results hold up. And Eric Adams, as Eric Adams says, is going to be mayor. Apologies to Curtis Sliwa, who will get through. Right? Like, what happens with Maya Wiley? You know, and Catherine Garcia, who've never run for office before, but have these interesting backgrounds. Like Garcia has been a commissioner; she's done that work uh, for a long time. Uh, Wiley has sort of had the the, the the social justice roles, was in the De Blasio administration for a long time, and then at the CCRB left that to like do stuff at the New School, talking to people at the New School. No one seems clear on what she was actually doing there, other than collecting an excellent salary. And and I, I'm honestly interested if they're going to be players in New York going going forward, or what what their next moves without getting ahead of things might might <laughs> might be if they're not going to be running the city as the 110th mayor. Yeah, if either I mean, of your thoughts there. Yeah, well, I would say quickly. I mean, I think you know Andrew Yang's line about you know helping whoever will be the next mayor is is sort of something nice you say at a concession speech, and who knows? I mean, he'll have he'll have plenty of options and plenty of you know possibilities to do things of, of all sorts. Um, and he does and not I, like Eric Adams. Let's, yeah, let's well, well, yeah. Andrew Yang will not be working in an Eric Adams administration. I think we can safely say that. <laughs> but, but again, to do what? Like, uh, answer me this, please. Like, I, I, yeah, I mean, well, I it think doesn't matter point, whose administration. What is his skill set to contribute to anything in the city of New York? Well, I think at this point, we don't particularly even have to worry about the answer to that question, right? He he performed very poorly here. He conceded. He most likely does not want to be part of city government. Um, you know, so he might wind up with a new, uh, you know, continuing with some sort of UBI work or who knows what he'll do, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's there's always another look at the Biden administration. Who knows? But um in terms of if Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia both uh, wind up uh, coming sh- coming up short, uh, I mean, again, Maya Wiley would have a lot of options. Uh, I mean, they both would, obviously, but, you know, Catherine Garcia is the one I could see. She seems to, you know, love government and want to be in government. So she's the one, obviously, who continues to seem to be someone who might want to consider, you know, being of service to the city, you know, in in a way, or she might want to try, you know, something different. Um, But I don't, I don't really have much of a forecast into, into what either of them would do. Uh, You know, Maya Wiley seems to gravitate more towards, you know, things like uh, academia or civil rights, you know, work. So, you know, I could see her going in a a variety of different places. So here's a follow-up then, because I'm curious as to what Ray McGuire, Sean Donovan, and now Scott Stringer do. Because Scott Stringer, in some ways, you know, I'm always saying Cuomo's raised in captivity, but in some ways, so Scott, right? He's been a public servant for a very, very long time. And so this is the first time, I think he said in 29 years. So what do you think Scott Stringer does? Um, I, I'm super excited. I have to say, I'm really actually excited about Ray McGuire and Sean Donovan. And, you know, you know, I have not been easy on either of them, Uh in their quest to become the 110th mayor. But I'm super, super excited about Ray McGuire and like what he does philanthropically now that he's actually understood how the city works. I think that he'll be so much more effective on all these boards that he's on because he can actually 
contribute in a different way to sort of say, it's like, no, I've actually now been to the five boroughs and Mm -hmm. this, this approach either is or is not working. So I'm excited about that. I do think that Sean Donovan has a three tiered level understanding of governance. Now, I think before he understood the federal government, I think he understands state government a little bit better, but he definitely understands city government. So I'm excited to see what he does and where he goes. But I think I'm more curious as to what does Scott do? He's now in the land of sort of discarded politicians who, and public, I will say public servants who've been in office for almost three decades. Can you see him working in a new administration? Or do you think he just cashes out in the private sector and it's like, you know what? I gave New York all this and they gave me barely, you know, 10%. Six. Yeah, you know, things are complicated. Things are complicated for Scott Stringer because of the way this is ending, right? I mean, and it's ending the way it's ending because of of what happened to make it end this way, you know? So, uh, but he's he's in, you know, that the, the fact that the the cloud of these allegations will follow him now to whatever is next is a real, is a real challenge for him, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I could see him going in a number of different directions. One of the biggest things we need to consider for him, especially, but even for maybe a couple of his other folks is redistricting is happening. Um, you know, who knows what kind of congressional races will shape up. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I, you know, Scott Stringer is not someone who's going to return to the state legislature, obviously, but there's state level races coming up um, and, and you know, redistricting for congressional seats. So that, that could be something interesting to watch for, for a number of folks. But Scott Stringer mm-hmm. could go run a, you know, he could go run a nonprofit. He could go do some consulting. There's a lot of things that, you know, he could potentially do. Um, it's hard to imagine him working in a, you know, in and any of these other folks' administrations, um, you know, that I would say. So it, it's always interesting when these races wrap up to see where everybody who doesn't win winds up going, mm-hmm. you know. But I think for the most part, people wind up going back to the things they've done before. So if I had to guess for someone like Sean Donovan, I'd guess, you know, he he goes to work in the Biden administration or he goes back to some consulting. Right. But with I, I think the reason why I'm so fascinated is like, well, what does Scott do? The last time right. Scott wasn't a public servant. Yeah. He was, you know, 10. Very, very hard to know what, what that could look like. Um, you know, there's always there's always musical chairs in elected office. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, look at John Liu, right? John Liu went from a citywide right. position to losing a mayoral race to the state Senate after two tries. So it's not like people don't move sort of up, down, sideways in elected office too, if they really want to stick around. So who knows what kind of, what kind of thoughts Scott Stringer might have again, you know, a different situation. Like I said, I don't see him going back to the state legislature, but who knows? Right. And speaking of musical chairs and the circle of life and all, <laughs> we're through the primary. We don't have all the results yet, but the voting is done. The general is mostly a formality. And next year, of course, uh, everyone in Albany is up. And so that's the one year where, where the city people have like uh, some, some, some sway and moral power. You remember this with de Blasio. It didn't work out that well, but he's like, I have this mandate. Albany, you got to give me things. So what, what, what is, if you're, if you're, if you're Andrew Cuomo, if you're a state lawmaker where there's been this big progressive wave over the last couple of election cycles, and you're looking at how this city election has played out, what, what are you thinking this means? Well, you know, I, I do think we're, if we take the totality and we're probably looking at, you know, city government writ large continuing to move at least a little bit further leftward, even if you have an Eric Adams as mayor, right, as we discussed with the potential lander win and some other things. So, um, you know, you still note that trend. We have to see what happens with all these city council races and the borough presidencies. But again, that's looking like the direction you know, one of the one of the most interesting and important things about let's just assume there's an Andrew Cuomo fourth term campaign happening next year, right? Maybe against Bill de Blasio in a primary, which is which is where my money is rather than not. Um, topic for another time. But Andrew uh, Cuomo should be so lucky. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> um, Wait, hold on really quickly, though. Yeah. Why a de Blasio Cuomo and not a Tish Cuomo? Oh, I don't think Tish James gives up. I mean, the, the my answer to that is just that 
Bill de Blasio won't have a job and Tish James will have a very high profile, high power job that she'd have to give up to run that race. Right. So I don't think anybody in their right mind takes on Andrew Cuomo if they have a really good job that they'd be risking. I mean, even if he's deeply, deeply wounded, I, I can't imagine Tish James taking the chance. Uh, no, I mean, who wants to go head to head with Andrew Cuomo in a, in a drag him out battle, unless, you know, that's sort of like, you're the left, you know, you're like the left Mm -hmm. candidate who's, who's trying to tackle, um, you know, the giant or you're, um, you know, like Bill de Blasio with an ax to grind and and in need of a job. I don't know. You know, uh, there's a lot of shoes that are going to drop, namely the Tish James AG office uh, led investigation of Andrew Cuomo, right? So right, uh, right. we'll see what happens there. We'll see what happens with the state assembly investigation. You know, my sense is that these are going to look really, really bad. The only, the only thing is, I don't know how much new information there will or won't be, right? So does it, do, you know, do these reports grab the public attention when they're not necessarily showing new information, but they're painting the, you know, they're putting the full picture together, of a deeply, deeply troubling culture that Andrew Cuomo has overseen. I mean, I think we've had enough corroborating testimony from allegations to know he, you know, he was running his his office in a very troubling way in terms of like, you know, recruiting and grooming young women uh, in, a, in a really disturbing uh, pattern, seemingly. So I think that's going to look really bad. And I think there's a chance he doesn't run, but, you know, the money is on him running again, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And one of the, taking his scandals aside for a second, but but they they matter here. One of the most important things for whoever the next mayor is is if you if you can somehow work decently with Andrew Cuomo, he's going to be in this election year. He'll want to do a lot for New York City, like work with him in some way, let him take the credit and let him do a lot for New York City instead of what Bill de Blasio did when he was first elected and, and you know, mucked the whole thing up from the beginning by insisting on your tax increases, um, you know, which I think was 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 uh, misguided. Not that there's any way to really get along with Andrew Cuomo, but, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's one thing I think worth considering where there's a pretty decent chance. It's not like Eric Adams is going to be coming into office with some big Albany agenda, right? I mean, he's focused on city stuff that the mayor controls. So this is not going to likely be a repeat. Although, like I said, I don't know that anybody can get along with Andrew Cuomo very well. Hmm. That's a lot to think about. But I, you know, I do, I, I, I will say, I don't want to get too far, you know, Eric Adams, uh, I'll keep saying, looks in really strong position, but I don't want to get too far ahead yeah. of this ranked choice voting, right? Like, I, I think we're still at wait and see. Now, I've got a quick question, though, now that we're on Albany. Um, <laughs> thinking about the controller's race, Brian Benjamin, state senator, Harlem, decides to run for controller, has one full season under his belt, but that's it. He goes back to the state Senate or, you know, does he, has he weakened himself running into reelection next year where someone's like, do you even want this job? Now I can essentially, you know, challenge you because you've run this race and are you even interested in being our state senator? Right. Yeah. I mean, somebody could take him on on that, you know, with that line, I think, um, there's probably a pretty good chance that his constituents are not so unhappy with him that he tried to run for citywide office and will still be, you know, be, be okay with him. But that, that, you know, that can be a dangerous thing to do to to show your constituents for one office that you want another, but you know, he, he still wanted to represent them, you know, and work in the city. So I think he'll be okay. I mean, I guess the question is for him, is he, you know, is he someone who really is itchy to leave the state legislature? You know, does he, does he try to look at something else, um, you know, there's not a lot of places to go once the city election cycle passes. Obviously there's right. a state, there's a state cycle coming up, but, and a federal, <laughs> well, you know, and a congressional one, but it's, you know, those, <laughs> there's a limited number of advancement opportunities. Yeah. I mean, well, you don't want to Michael Blake yourself and run for, you know, eight offices and keep losing each one by worse numbers each time. Yeah. I mean, I think 
just while we're rounding up sort of a lot of the apparent um, uh, non-winners, uh, <laughs> to be gentle, you know, I do think if it, again, there's a lot of votes still to be reallocated and counted for the first time. Um, you know, it will, if Corey Johnson does come up short for controller, which I don't think is a, you know, a done deal by any means, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what he, what he looks at next to. Mm. Mm. Really talented, you know, really, really talented guy, thoughtful, smart, um, mm-hmm. and charismatic, young. you know? Yeah. And, and, and he's yeah. done anything about politics for a long time now. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. But again, we got to see we got to see what happens here. I mean, there's you know there's a lot of even just looking at the initial votes. I mean, there's there's a lot of possible Corey Johnson second you know second choice votes there because yeah, Lander is the type of candidate because he's pretty far to one poll uh, that can be you know can be the type in RCV that isn't that many people second. Or thirds, right? right? Because he's, you know, the RCV is meant to sort of like bring consensus together. So that could be an interesting thing where Corey Johnson, again, with his name recognition as city council speaker, might have a lot of number twos. Um, yeah. Well, he's also a known else. quantity. Yep. And he seems interested in governance, even though, I mean, there's some question as to where he was, you know, during COVID. Mm-hmm. But like, by and large, he seems very engaged and actually wants to do the job compared to our current mayor, who's kind of had a bad case of senioritis for six years. (laughs) I did see that Gail Brewer is doing incredibly well in her race. And, you know, listen. Back to the city council. I've said this on the podcast. You know, Gail Brewer, for those of our listeners who may not know, is current Manhattan Borough president. She was a city council member. She's now looking like she's going back to the city council. I love Gail Brewer. Don't get me started on how much I love Gail Brewer. I think she is a public servant's public servant. But I did ask her when I was on the Amsterdam endorsement, Amsterdam News Endorsement Board. I think the Democrats have a problem with giving up seats on the bench. We see this with the Republicans. All these old dinosaurs are retiring and everyone's like, oh, they're afraid of Trump. It's like, no, you have to like clear the forest so young trees can grow. And I just feel like Gail has put in so much time in public service. I don't think that anyone can match her legacy. Like, there's not an event I've ever been to where she didn't come by, no matter how small or or large. Um, but I do worry that this sets a bad precedent for the future generations of Democratic candidates because people get their start in city council and then can go on and flourish and do great things like become Manhattan borough president. And the fact that she's back at city council, to me, cuts off some of the small trees that can grow. Charles Barron too, right? Like you have a bunch uh, of these people who are rotating in and out now with yeah. the term limits. and Yeah. There, there, there's, you know, like half a dozen uh, city council members coming back to the council or close to coming back to the council. We even saw it previously with Jim Gennaro in a special election mm-hmm. in Queens. Um, Tony Avella. Yeah. The, I mean, there, there's like, you know, half a dozen of these returners who, uh, you know, again, some of them are at various stages of their careers. They're not, you know, you know, it's it's a it's a democracy. It's a free country. They can do what they want. But I agree. You know, there's there is a there are some real questions there about whether you're letting the next generation, uh, you know, come up and and giving people you know a shot to to start to get into government because it can be that can be quite discouraging that the old guard doesn't want to let the new blood in. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a very very reasonable. Uh, question and point that I've heard a lot of people raise as, as Gail's gone back from borough president to, to the city council. Speaking of the borough, Manhattan borough president office, I mean, that's, that's one of, that's one of a bunch of races here that is very much too close to call um, and very interesting. Uh, it looks like it'll be Mark Levine and Brad Hoyleman mm-hmm. going down the stretch here for Manhattan borough president. So, you know, as we look ahead to the next city government and the future of city politics, you know, the, whatever happens in a number of these races that are close, you know, whoever the next Manhattan borough president is, whoever the next city controller is. I mean, these are like people taking big steps up in, in uh, New York politics and therefore, you know, they, they take on these bigger jobs and then they immediately become 
the next potential mayoral candidates. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of these things I've said to people about the controller race, trying to get people to pay attention to the controller race is like, whoever wins this race, whoever's the next controller is immediately in the front runner conversation to be the, the following mayor, you know, and again, that's far down the line, but it's, it's the importance of elevating people. Even if you don't pay as much attention to what the next job is like borough president, these are people now getting elevated to a new place where you have someone Eric Adams going from borough president to potentially the next mayor, uh, you know, and, and we well, see. I mean, and also just like just keeping it 100, you know, David Dinkins was a one term mayor. He's our first and only black mayor in the city of New York, and he was a one termer. And so I think that there are some real questions slash concerns and some realities of what it means to be a black mayor in a non majority black city with the press, with the understanding of race and class, with possibly his agenda and also his personality, and some other things when it comes to housing and whether he mm-hmm. lives in New York, whatever whatever buckets of drama that come along <laughs> with Eric Adams, I do think that we will, we could see, not we will, we could see a real substantive Democratic primary challenge to Eric Adams at a certain point if New Yorkers, certain New Yorkers, not all, certain New Yorkers feel as though he's not catering to their particular needs and wishes like they're accustomed to well, that they saw under Bloomberg and that they saw under de Blasio. And so putting someone up to run against an Eric Adams in his, at the end of his first term would be a really interesting thing. Not something, not a, not a nonsensical candidate mm-hmm. like Sal Albanese. I'm saying that deliberately. I'm talking about someone who's, who's either a controller or a borough president who well, would wage a real campaign against Adams. Well, that would be very interesting, especially if Adams has some sort of scandals or something. I mean, we almost saw that with de Blasio, right? But um, I I mean, I think potentially even more likely is that the left tries to run somebody against him. And, you know, if if he's the mayor, you know, and he's running for reelection, that that the left tries to put somebody up against him. I mean, you know, one of the big one of the biggest things that Eric Adams was buoyed by was labor. Mm-hmm. And so there's a pretty good shot that Labor's still very happy with him if he's the mayor and he's going to be running for re-election. So, um, you know, that would be a big barrier for anybody trying to to unseat it, you know, incumbent mayors if if Labor's pretty happy with that person. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was the, that was that was kind of the challenge with De Blasio, right? There wasn't a lot of room for, you know, other than if if there was some kind of indictment from let's even just say his sort of inner circle, not him, uh, you know, that would have been the big shoe to drop. But other than that, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of room, you know, there wasn't that much room to his left. There wasn't that much room to his right. You know, he, he, he had made labor pretty happy. So you kind of box people, you know, box people out, but an Eric Adams mayoralty, you know, there's probably a significant amount of room to his left to, you know, for that type of challenge in a, in a primary, but, that's that's a ways off. Yeah. So, Until we look up and we're like, oh wait, here we are. Yep. So so we, we brought up uh, Manhattan already. Uh, before you go, I do just want to ask about what races surprise you, and I'm hoping you can do a quick tour of the uh, borough president races because, because I think there's some interesting stuff there. Uh, uh, Antonio Reynoso has a big lead in Brooklyn, who was. I think the most progressive of the the leading candidates there Um, in Queens, Donovan Richards, right? Who won a special over Elizabeth Crowley. Uh, Shout out to AOC and the Crowley family Um, is they're they're like 0.1% apart at this point uh, in a rematch. And then Jimmy Van Bramer who has been on the pod is also running and like where his second choice, his supporter second choices go is going to be a big deal in Staten Island. Vito fucking Fasella. uh, uh, He, he of the two families looks to be ahead. That's also sort of too close to call at this point. And in the Bronx, right? We got a Vanessa Gibson who, Looks to uh, looks to be ahead again, not called, not done. Who I think would be the first non uh, non Latino uh, borough president there in my lifetime, I believe. I've yeah, got to go back and I check. Think that's about right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 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 there just there does seem to be a lot of down ticket ba- uh, drama 
Uh, were there any races down there, council races, those that like just jumped out at you guys as, as surprising or interesting or bellwethers for where we're going? Well, I'll, just on the, I, I, I'm not even really at this point ready to dig into all the city council races, but on the borough presidencies, I mean, that was a good tour around the boroughs you just gave. But, you know, I do think the, um, the Reynoso showing in Brooklyn is significant in terms of, you know, this is, again, this is someone pretty far left, as you said. I mean, certainly the candidate of the left of the Working Families Party and a bunch of advocacy groups and elected officials and such. So, again, fitting into this larger picture that we're painting that people may may draw simplistic, you know, conclusions around Eric Adams' success. Um, you know, there's another data point in that conversation there with Reynoso doing well. Again, a lot of votes still to be to be seen, but, you know, he's probably going to be in in pretty good shape, even in a RCV situation, because the, the, you know, the, the other two behind him are Robert Cornegy and Joanne Simon. And there's probably a decent chance that a lot of Simon's second choices would be Reynoso and, and Cornegy the same. But um, I do think just quickly that, you know, if, if Stephen Matteo, the city council member loses in that Republican primary on Staten Island to, to Vita Vassella, uh, which seems quite possible, um, you know, that's, that's sort of a shame because he's just like, you know, this is a guy who just like goes to work every day and tries to help his constituents on Staten Island. He wants nothing to do with like, you know, national politics and all this stuff that's going on and, you know, the type of, you know, kind of lunch pail, uh, politician in New York city who, you know, just is a, is a solid public servant and, and that looks like a little bit of a of a shame there if if that happens, but there's a lot to be seen. The the Queensboro president race is probably the most fascinating here right now because Richards might lose his seat after holding it for a short time. And as you said, Jimmy Van, I mean, basically this is gonna come down to Jimmy Van Bramer's second choice, you know, his voters' second choices, whether they go to Richards or Crowley, is basically gonna determine this race. So that's, you know, the instant runoff of ranked choice voting right there in action with a with a three candidate field is like as clear, as clear cut as it gets, uh, is going to be very interesting. You know, that, that race has always seemed a little strange to me, given Richard just won the seat. This is not really, you know, th there are people on the left who think he's too close with the queen's machine and he's too development friendly and things like that. But this is like a very progressive guy who, uh, you know, like the case against the, you know, there's a very thin case against him. This is just a couple, a couple folks who like, you know, still want to be uh, in elected office and or come back to elected office. So that's that'll be that'll be interesting to watch. And Chrissy, Ben, thank you again for for taking the time. It's one twenty in the morning <laughs> right now. So so rank choice voting. I, I have some doubts. I, I feel like eight candidates in the mayoral field was way too many, and this meant that they didn't have a reason to get out. I know right. you know a big part of the idea here is is to get away from runoffs that are expensive and not that many people show up, but, but those can also have clarifying value. And about 750,000 people in the count so far, which means with all these absentees to come, we're going to be at least 100,000, probably a bunch more, more voters than we had in 2013. We got to wait and see how the counting goes, I know, but like at this point, does this seem like a... Uh, a successful experiment uh, for for our democracy, or, or not? So I'm I'm torn on this. I'm interested in what yeah. you guys think. I can't call it just yet. I really can't. Um, you know, listen. I think even though we've done better than 2013, 2013 was an embarrassing, abysmal turnout. So I mean, okay. So we do better than 17, 20 percent. I mean, that's still we're so far, far away from real success. I was looking at some of these numbers. You know, in Staten Island, people are 7,000 votes for a candidate, you know, who could become the Republican nominee. 7,000 votes. I mean, this is this is embarrassing when we think about our democracy. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I definitely agree with you, Harry. There was no incentive to leave the race. You know, why would Sean Donovan get out, even though he was polling at, you know, 2 3% the entire time? It's like, well, who knows if, I, if I'm someone's second or third choice? So... You stay but, in, but it sort of muddles the conversation for a lot of folks who aren't right. thinking about this for six months and, and just started tuning in a week and a half ago. I guess my only issue on that is that RCV sort of takes 
RCV and the nature of politics sort of takes care of this, right? Like, look at how voters just sort of winnowed the field to make those last three and even four with Stringer, you know, candidates fairly, you know, irrelevant in the final tallies at such low percentages, right? So the, you know, the sort of clarifying effects happened and, and voters just sort of understood who the real front runners were and started to choose more among them. And with RCV, even if there's a bunch of people putting Sean Donovan first, you know, their second and, and third choices will wind up, you know, mattering that their vote will wind up going to. So I don't know, you know, I don't know that I think we might need to move away from even worrying about people getting out of the race. It's just RCV sort of takes care of that. But the one of the biggest things I would say in terms of clarifying things better for voters is they absolutely need to rethink the debate program uh, because uh, there's no way that a right. candidate should have been in the final debate. Right. Again, right. RC- RCV, you can sort of say, well, RCV just sort of say, takes care of that, but it's a disservice to voters who would maybe be tuning in for one hour of a debate to try to sort out eight candidates what, when- so- you didn't like the let's watch half of it on TV and then switch over yeah. to streaming. Well, that part also I mean, needs to be. You know, made. when we think about yeah. sort of elderly voters who are primarily primary voters and asking them to switch from television to their computers. No. But I do have a question for you though, Ben, mm-hmm. because did the voters winnow these candidates down or did the press? Because I feel like at a certain point in time, the press just stopped talking about Scott Stringer. They just weren't reporting on him. Or, you know, the press never yeah. really got into Ray or Sean or Diane in a particular, you know, we had a conversation about when Diane first came in the race and it was like, she just didn't mm-hmm. get any traction because people were like, oh, I don't really know her. So mm, we're not going to report on her. I mean, yeah. well, you know, one of the issues, one of the other issues of this race was the limited polling from the big pollsters. So that was another issue, but the batch of polling that we did get from different places wound up looking kind of shaken out pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason that you saw people start to to remove McGuire and Donovan for more consideration for press coverage is that they just like weren't gaining traction in any of the polling we were seeing. Morales was getting more attention when she when when she was getting all these endorsements and she was growing her her polling percentage and then, you know, things fell apart. Um, you know, for Scott Stringer again, same thing, like the endorsers that ditched him and then, you know, some of his poll numbers starting to either stagnate or get worse, that those give signals to the press, um, you know, about it. Also, I think, you know, these campaigns mostly ran campaigns lacking a lot of, you know, a lot, if any, of creativity or Mm -hmm. trying to really hit home uh, you know, a defining message or a defining proposal or things like that. Um, you know, McGuire tried with his focus on the economy. Um, but again, you know, it's really hard to go from nobody, nobody in the general public knowing who you are to, you know, winning a mayoral race is, is very, very hard. One of the other under discussed parts of this uh, election is the amount of the outside spending. I mean, there's been a lot, you know, there's been a bit of news coverage on it, but the super PAC spending in this race that increased massively from the last open New York City mayoral race is is really a sight to behold. And the fact that the huge amounts of money from McGuire and Donovan didn't move anything is, again, sort of another interesting tell that like voters were being inundated with this stuff and it just didn't land for them. And I think that that's sort of a credit to the you know, democratic process. I mean, look at the Manhattan DA race too. If, if Tali Farhadi and Weinstein doesn't wind up winning that dropping $8 million of her own money in that race, you know, that's, again, it's a little bit of a sort of credit to voters. Not, I'm not saying, you know, people shouldn't have voted for her, but that like that, that didn't just buy the race. Right. Mm -hmm. And that the McGuire money, both the campaign money and the outside spending, you know, didn't move the needle is pretty interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to we let you ben. go right at 1.30 a.m. <laughs> I think, is, it, is this early for us or late for us? I don't remember. The, the election nights are remember. far enough apart that I forget. It's all running into one <laughs> one long election night. Yes. Well, wait, we were together. When was our first election night together? 2017? 
I don't know. 17 or 18. I don't know. We were definitely together in 18. Oh, it it was 2018. Yeah. Because we started the podcast in 2018. So it was was 2018. Yeah. I remember us talking about Cuomo's, you know, Cuomo's reelect. So. Yes. 2018. I knew we we had had an 18. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you. Yeah. It it gets laid early around you. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not ready for this mayoral race to be over. I mean, I know we got a couple of weeks of vote counting, but like, I mean, I need some sleep desperately, but I also, I don't know. It's like, you know. What? You're just. There's more. There's, you're there's, so used to running <laughs> yourself ragged. You want to continue? No, well, I'm Less I'm of confused. that, but. Well, I just feel like, um, you know, coming out of COVID and getting this clarified down to, you know, three to four leading candidates, you know, I feel like we're just sort of hitting a stride of really examining things. I mean, I, you know, I think it's true that the Eric Adams scrutiny came a little late. Um, And uh, well, I feel like the Garcia Wiley scrutiny hasn't come at all. Fair enough. There's only been a smattering there uh, of, you know, examinations of their records. Um, yeah. I mean, listen, I don't know if the, if the, I mean, if the primary was still in September, most voters still wouldn't be tuning in now, right? Like, they right. Do, so it all, but you know, I it's still a couple think, weeks before whatever election day is. I think but, if we had a September, I genuinely think that Donovan and McGuire would be in a very different place. I think that Eric may have imploded. Somehow, yeah. some way, Yang would be a non-factor. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the two of them were just now getting their sea legs. In 2013, de Blasio was the only guy with dark money. This time, everyone except uh, mm. Morales ended up with it, right? And everyone had the same math we saw this time before ranked choice voting that you want to spend late. And this is when voters are finally focusing. The only people spent early this time were, were Donovan and McGuire, and that's because they were dead politically speaking. And so they had to start spending money. Everyone's idea was, was save it until the very, very end. Yeah. Um, but in 2013, de Blasio with his dark money was the one guy who spent early and aggressively. And that may have really changed the contours of the race and hurt Christine Quinn. I should ask about this. It's also possible it's just Anthony Weiner coming in. Mm-hmm. And that took away her steam. But it was fascinating to me this time with no one knowing what they were doing, with this new rank choice system, this new calendar, everyone having and dark money, to see all the smart people in the campaigns, they're all guessing, maybe they're all right, I don't know, all, all sort of implicitly agree, like, let's not do anything until the end, if we can help it. Let's right. not directly engage other candidates. Mm-hmm. Let's not spend our money. Let, you know, it, it's only going to matter over this tiny stretch. And maybe the pandemic played in, I'm not sure. But I am curious... You know, in, in, I've been watching the, the basketball playoffs with the adjustments <laughs> teams make yeah. between games, mm-hmm. you know, in these intense series. If, if there are new lessons or new sort of counter strategies we're going to see when, when we get another of these elections. And Ben, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry it's over, too, because it's going to be a long time now before we get to actually find out. Well, well just, to, just to make it a callback, I think this is why it's important that we support, A, local media, and B, we have to be very weary of national reporters who want to dip their toes into a mayoral race and they don't know what they're talking about. Like these are conversations that we've been having and there's a lot of nuance to said conversations. So just because you understand Biden in Iowa or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren doesn't mean that you understand an Eric Adams, a Maya Wiley and a Catherine Garcia. Amen. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot more to discuss about this mayoral race another time, and and you know we definitely should see how the absentees and the RCV go before we mm-hmm. break it down too much, right? But you know, to your point though, Harry, about 2013 and De Blasio, like De Blasio had this you know really amazing confluence of events, right? Because as much as people mm-hmm. sometimes want to take away, you know, or or you know, point his victory to like the Wiener implosion and the horse carriage people and the, you know, this and that. It's also very clear that he had like the best consistent message, right? Stop and press. And he, you know, merged these, these, he merged the two big pieces of the zeitgeist around inequality writ large and then policing exactly and stop and frisk and, you know, ran an unbelievably disciplined, you know, campaign and then also got some breaks and, you know, that's one of the things we've seen this time where, like, 
Eric Adams has had a lot going for him with labor support and labor spending on the outside and all the money that he was able to raise on his own and, and all of that. Um, and, and some real questions, you know, I think mostly, you know, really for Maya Wiley and, and her campaign. Um, but, but something I didn't mention that I think is really important here and, and a final, <laughs> final thought is like the confluence of the, allegations against Stringer and then the New York Times endorsement going to Catherine Garcia, where like, if there's no allegations against Stringer, he's probably, you know, getting that endorsement or, or he's at least mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Um, that changed this, you know, that those two things combined change this race in a incalculable way. We'll never know, but Catherine Garcia has even, you know, acknowledged that the Times endorsement shot her into a totally right. new stratosphere and again, she may very well have deserved that endorsement, right? Stringer allegations or not, maybe she gets it, whatever it is. But I mean, the, those two things combined change this race in a mm-hmm. incredible way where Garcia clearly is getting a whole bunch of votes that Maya Wiley thought she would be getting or competing with Scott Stringer for at the start of this campaign, not not thinking Garcia would even really be in competition for those votes. And so again, back to like where we started with the narratives around this race. Yes. Catherine Garcia in a lot of ways has a more moderate uh, platform and talks more on policing like Eric Adams and Andrew Yang were, but she seems to be very much buoyed by the people who care what the New York Times editorial board has to say, and that it are those are voters that Maya Wiley thought she was going to get, who are the MSNBC watchers, right? So yeah. it's it's just not as simple as um, you well, know. Look at the detailed map. Progressives. The Garcia Garcia is Manhattan. Mm-hmm. That's what the detailed map on the Times is showing. Right. I mean, it's all huge. Teal. Yep. Yep. Hmm. So you know, and then. You, you talk about this, Christine, a lot, but, um, you know, the definitions of like what's progressive and what's not. I mean, in this race, because it's been dominated by public safety and crime, almost everybody's being defined by like where they stand on those issues. And those are extremely important issues. But, you know, there's there's a lot of room to discuss like. Catherine Garcia's, you know, transit and housing and like climate stuff is maybe as progressive as anybody in the race. Right. And so there's like all, all, a lot of different, a lot of different, we've, we've written about this a bit, you know, where we examine her, you know, her platform, my Wiley's and others, but uh, like I said, too much, too much nuance. (laughs) Wow. Well, we appreciate you. It's my pleasure. And get, get, get some sleep. Uh, uh, We'll get to July and we'll have some idea what actually happened. Yeah, exactly. See you in a few weeks when when this has all been proven wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We're never wrong on FAQ. (laughs) We just have to make sure we manipulate the the vote. (laughs) Backfill it. But we really, we appreciate not just, you know, you coming on tonight, but obviously the diligent work you've been doing all season to bring New Yorkers a real uh, macro and micro understanding of so many races. I mean, you didn't just cover the mayor's race. I mean, you were in the weeds for council races and the borough president <laughs> races and everything that sort of makes this city work. And this is why we pay all this money to live in this insane place that, you know, my friend's son from England said, you know, has lots of crazy people and smells like trash. Mm-hmm. But, but we love it for whatever reason. And there are a lot of really brave people who decided to run for office and and choose to become public servants. And so you did a really great job at laying out all of our options for us. And I really appreciate it. Thank that. you. We have a really good, small but mighty team at Gotham Gazette. So I give a lot of credit to folks who I work with who, who've been putting in a lot of work. And then also, you know, there's there's the 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 diminished but still strong New York City press corps is still mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. still a force and, you know, you guys have had plenty of our colleagues on who have done great work and there's been a lot of that great work. And like I said, if, uh, it'd be great to have a few more weeks or months for more of that to dig into these folks. Um, but, uh, but there's been a lot of good, 
a lot of good stuff, both on the sort of just like laying things out for people, explanatory side. There's been some good investigative stuff. Obviously, the, the depleted press corps is, you know, not doing the type of investigative stuff at scale that our city deserves, but a lot of good work happening. So, yeah, we, we you know, we cover the city council races with a, with a couple of partners, right? Because nobody can really do it on their own. Right. Someone give us money so we can build up the press corps. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thank you both. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Ben Max of Gotham Gazette. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you soon.